As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen headed a Red Bull 1 2 in the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix at Imola. But the big story was Charles Leclerc's spin in the race that turned a certain third place into sixth. So, what does that mean for the title battle, and what does Red Bull's pace advantage tell us about the balance of power in the championship? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, how are you getting on? Last time I saw you, maybe an hour or two ago, you were wondering whether you'd be able to dig yourself out of the car park. I managed to get out of the mud, did you? Yes, it's just a question of waiting for the um, the slow people to get out of the way so you could take a good run at it and keep some momentum and not be worried about it sliding and then you you, you sail through. But if you try to follow the others, yeah, you're going to have to come out with a tractor. <laughs> that almost sounds like an F1 driver excuse. Just slight tweaking. You'd uh, very much have it there. And also, Scott Mitchell, how have you enjoyed seeing F1 pounding around Imola again? Yeah, it's been, um, it's been good. I must admit it's... Uh, for various reasons, it's now the um, it's the third time in a row I've only been I've been reduced to watching this race from uh, television rather than being on site. Um, so I still miss I'm still waiting for the opportunity to actually go and experience uh, Imola as uh, as a circuit and, and and what these cars look like there. But I have to say, it is one that just lo- it looks it, it's one of those races where even on television. It really does it really does have something special about it. It's just something about that the track, the layout, the proximity of the grass or gravel, and even the curbs are pretty punishing. It's just, yeah, you just know, you know watching it, you're not watching like a modern, boring, Tilkadrome kind of circuit, you know? Like, it's not like car parks worth of runoff and that and that kind of thing. I'm sure by the sounds of it, um, you could have benefited from some actual asphalt runoff in the actual car parks at Imola last weekend, but home and dry from afar is absolutely a, a great Grand Prix to have back. They, they did try to install some pseudo asphalt late on, but it was a little bit uh, too little too late, although it did help a bit. But yeah, I would say it's very old school Imola, and I'm really pleased Imola's on the F1 calendar, but I would like to see a little bit more effort going into the organisation. I know there's limitations of the of the place, but I have to say, Mark, it was quite retro wasn't it in it was a a good and a bad way yeah it it reminded me of silverstone 2000 when we all got stuck in the car park and when there used to just be one one road in and yeah it's a bit like that so um yeah beautiful beautiful place and um some of the images from the uh there was a an f3 race on this morning just at the time when the sunlight was breaking through but there was loads of spray coming up from the cars and it was just gorgeous um it sort of you know reminded you where you were and um, what a special place it was but uh, yeah it's it's a pretty pretty high maintenance weekend 
<laughs> I hope the organisers learn from it because they, they've got responsibility to, to this race to keep it on the F1 calendar beyond the end of its current deal in 25. So I want to see them really, uh, really raising the game and, and taking that side of things seriously. But absolutely wonderful venue. And of course, Scott, the scene was set for a great day for Ferrari. Didn't quite happen. And I guess we've got to start with the first big unforced error of the season by a title contender, haven't we? Charles Leclerc recently made his pit stop when he, well, second pit stop, when he spun into the wall at Variante Alta. He did get back to the pits, but was only able to recover to finish six. Were you surprised by his error? Um, yes, in the sense that he's been performing at such a high level this season. Um, and he hasn't looked like making an error, a really serious error in any race. There was a small misjudgment ahead of that restart in Australia, wasn't there? But that was more sort of misjudging the grip he'd have after the um, the safety car period. So I was surprised in that sense, um, but then not surprised in another because you could see he was pushing very, very hard. He'd um, he'd been suddenly presented with this opportunity to to fight Perez for second, which had just it just disappeared over the course of the Grand Prix. His race was petering out into a really lonely third. So you could see him pushing very hard for that. And obviously in those conditions, you just you know get slightly wrong. And it's a punishing circuit. We, I was just uh, praising Imola for exactly that trait. So perhaps not surprising in that sense. And also just Charles is one of those drivers who, when, when, he's, at, when he's fully on it, when he's fully pushing... There is a there there is a the possibility of an error there. He isn't someone who um, is happy sitting, you know, a few points of a percentage away from his um, maximum. Shall we say he he's someone who's absolutely happy to to take it to the limit. It's why he's produced some fantastic qualifying laps and amazing on track moments in, in in battle since he's come into Formula One. Yeah, I get exactly what you mean when you say you're sort of partly surprised but partly not surprised. This was the big question with Leclerc. Could he cut these out of his game? What did you make of it, Mark? Do you think it was just small mistake pushing on, understandable? Or do you think that was a moment where discretion might have been the better part of Valor for him and he just stuck with what he got? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say that in hindsight because of what happened. But um, in the moment, I think pushing for second when you were third uh, was perfectly you know, uh, understandable. Despite your strong points lead, that you're, you're still given points away if you think seconds on the table and you settle for third. And um, you know that, that's what we love about him. He, he, he does attack and he does push on. And uh, yeah, just a bit too hard over that inner curb. I think in last year's car, you could probably take um, that much curb, but with the much stiffer suspensions and the the, the no. There's no trick hydraulics on them and things like that. It, they're much less forgiving of um, being whacked over curbs, and uh, there was no coming back from it. It properly launched the car, didn't it? Like, mm. like when I was watching him on board when it happened, then obviously the main thing I saw was him just lose control. You didn't really get a sense of it from the onboard at just how much air the car had got. And then I saw the external shot, and I was like, well, absolutely, it was like going over a ramp. <laughs> yeah, it, it was interesting because Perez mentioned that Leclerc was gaining him on, on him through that part of the track anyway, through that chicane, and maybe he was living on the edge a little bit, I think Perez was suggesting. But yeah, it's a small mistake, it, it happens. I do wonder if actually the cost of it, which is a seven points loss, third against six, if you look at it that way, that's maybe not too bad a price to pay for a little reminder that he is in a championship fight and he needs to make sure he balances up that attack and defence. You can't criticise a racing driver too much for attacking for a... A position gain, but he had a commanding championship lead, and it's not quite as uh, as strong as it would have been uh, as a result. But uh, yeah, it, it happens. As ever on the podcast, we've got questions from members of the race members club. Niall Boyle has a question mark, which is about the the strategy there. He says, Charles Leclerc, why oh why? Ferrari's decision to risk everything for one extra point is extremely short-sighted. Is this a cause for concern in terms of their race management as the season develops? What do you think? Were they wrong to make that extra pit stop? I think he's assuming that the pit stop was for the fastest lap point. It wasn't. It was because they were still trying to get the second place. They reasoned that he was now running out of tyres compared to Perez and so was falling back. And that if they made the pit stop, Perez would also make the pit stop, which was the correct assumption. That is what happened. And then we'd both be on the same uh, you know, tyres again. So it was a tyre reset. 
And so there was, well, there was still enough time left, rather than just accept that we're going to be third, they thought, well, let's make the stop. We're still going to be third at worst, but we might be second. So it was a perfectly logical decision and a, and a pleasingly aggressive racing decision. Um, it wasn't for the extra point of fastest lap. If you were just doing that, you would have done it at the end. Exactly. It was lap 49 of 63 that he made the stop on, so it was not one of those late ones. I'm not a big fan of the fastest lap point, and I'm waiting for the day someone drops it while taking one of those late pit stops just so I can uh, find it amusing. But yeah, I, I don't think that was the main motivation. It was uh, it was an understandable one. So shall we get on to the traditional question, Mark? Can you take us through how the race was won by Max Verstappen? I guess we have got to start with what we saw in the Saturday sprint because that was almost stint one of the race, wasn't it? Yeah, in fact, I'd, I'd rewind even further back than that. I'd go to qualifying where um, the last laps of Q3 and the track's getting faster every lap. It's drying out. Um, it's still on inters, but it's getting quicker each lap. Um, the first of, of, of the, the laps, Leclerc's marginally faster than Verstappen. It looks like the Ferrari has a small edge, and then Leclerc just locks up going into Aqua Minerale, um, and Max's lap, by contrast, is quite clean, so that put him on a comfortable pole. And it really did, the, 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 that, would, that turned out to be a massive advantage because everybody on the odd-numbered side of the grid, i.e. pole, third, fifth, etc., had a huge grip advantage over those on the even side of the grid. It was just much wetter on that side. Um, so you, you saw everybody on the right-hand side of the grid fall back, everybody on the left-hand side, um, uh, you know, vault ahead. So that put Perez straight into second position, and from there, Red Bull was in control of the race, and that's just how it was. I don't think um, there was any significant difference in pace between the two cars this weekend. And I think in a straightforward dry weekend, we might have seen Ferrari still have a slight edge. But in just the way the circumstances played out and in, you know, Leclerc's attacking um, style, it uh, it sort of came it came to Red Bull um, and they, they maximized, they absolutely nailed it. But it wasn't a case like we saw in Melbourne with Red Bull where they were just massively off their potential. It, the, the Ferrari wasn't, it was it was. Um, just more circumstantial that put them in the um, the in the the position they were in, and uh, Red Bull just played their cards perfectly. What's absolutely brilliant is that just as last year, we've got two teams who are similar in performance, and it's those small details. In fact, Max Verstappen was talking about small details making a difference after the race that that swings it one way or the other, and then we have got these two mega drivers in Verstappen and Leclerc going at it if that carries on through the season this is what I was saying last year if this goes to the end it's going to be mega and now I'm hoping for a repeat this year with with those two it's just uh, just absolutely uh, absolutely great to see Scott do you think the fact that Verstappen's got this bigger swing in his favour huge points haul for him this weekend obviously was it 34 points he's taken home from from this event and Leclerc's the one who's made the unforced error that's that's proved costly it's more than just the point swing in his favour that that's good news for Verstappen here, isn't it? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, th- this was uh, it's, a, it's a big psychological boost as well for two reasons. One specifically about Red Bull itself, uh, because after Australia, Verstappen was obviously quite downbeat about the situation. At that point, he had two retirements in three races. But now, two now after this event, he has two wins in three races. So it's a much more sort of pleasing and glass half full statistic for him to reflect on. Um, he, yeah, he was massively downplaying his title chances, and he would never have, in a million years, have dreamed he could take this many points out of Leclerc on a single weekend. Um, it's obviously been helped by the fact that Leclerc's made a mistake, and yes, obviously over the course of the season, it's realistic for Verstappen to think maybe Leclerc will have a re- retirement or a bad weekend here or there. But just that ability to clean sweep everything with all the points that are um, uh, uh, available across, you know, the sprint, the Grand Prix itself, the fastest lap, he's he's just ended up in a in a in a position where in one race he obviously. In an absolute ideal world, he would have eradicated the majority of that deficit to to Leclerc. But to 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 cut into such a big chunk of it in one go, that's huge. Then the other factor is it's the first time that Leclerc and Ferrari are now under scrutiny after a Grand Prix weekend. And you know, Mattia Bonotto is 
brushing it off and saying he has no regrets over their aggressive strategy choice and no regrets over asking Leclerc to push and ultimately all of those all all of those decisions lead into the circumstances that Leclerc spun under but it is still scrutiny that Ferrari has to face it was a mistaken a costly one on home soil it's the first time Leclerc's heard in battle this season so it's a psychological shift in that sense as well Verstappen's had an absolutely flawless and perfect weekend and Leclerc's faltered for the first time so it's just one of those things that okay we don't have a race next weekend but it'll be a couple of weeks we'll be back in Miami and Verstappen will feel a little bit more like the moment the momentum's on his side and now if he wins in Miami um, he knows that he's then back within a single race victory of uh, of Leclerc and it's just little things like that that even early in the season can just can just just be nice Ra- rather than having to face up to all these little niggling problems or or frustrations it's just one weekend where everything goes perfectly and now it's you know the sun's shining for Verstappen and Red Bull it's 27 points the gap now, 19 points gained by Verstappen this weekend. We should briefly, Mark, talk about Checo Perez, second place. This is the first time he's rounded out a 1-2 for Red Bull, their first 1-2 since Malaysia 2016. Had to add the small caveat that this would have happened with these two in Baku last year had Verstappen not had that late tyre failure. So Perez has kind of sort of done this before, but... It's just continuing that really rock-solid start to the season for him, isn't it? He's proving to be a, a really key ally for Verstappen this year. Yeah, and he's uh, much happier in this car than he was in last year's car, and it's it, you, you can drive it like he, he naturally wants to drive it. Um, he, he under-delivered in qualifying, but he put that right in the sprint race, and um, as I say, from there, he, he benefited from the, um, the, the, the grippier side of the grid and then just did what he absolutely had to. And uh, at around the 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 the, the second stops, when um, Leclerc had gone for the undercut, he was um, you know he did absolutely what he had to do, although it was pretty marginal. And uh, yeah, he did a great job. Yeah, and we should say if he hadn't been there for Leclerc to be pushing to catch, then the unforced error probably wouldn't have happened. So doubly important there. Well done, Checo Perez. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Scott, let's get on to third place now. We were cautious about McLaren's revival in Australia. The team warned it might be track-specific, but it was clearly best of the rest of Imola. Lando Norris took that third place, and he said in Bahrain he didn't think for a minute he'd be on the podium all season with how much they struggled. So now can we say that that McLaren progress is real? Yeah, I think so. I think it's. Um, I think in Australia there was a bit more of a feeling inside McLaren that it was track-specific and... And maybe a bit more of a of, of a one off, and I don't think they now believe that they are emphatically the third fastest car or anything like that. I think they recognise that Mercedes had a a difficult weekend, but they definitely were the third fastest team over the course of the over the weekend as a whole at Imola. Um, I think they they view it now as a sign of the potential that this car has, whereas in Bahrain, obviously, it looked. Um, it looked like it had a much lower ceiling than this, the MCL thirty six. There are still some, there are still some asterisks, I suppose, against them. I don't think they had the third fastest car in the race. I think um, the Mercedes and maybe even the Alfa Romeo was actually um, slightly faster. Um, you can't really make a direct comparison, even though Norris was being caught towards the end and Bottas's pace, in particular, in the Alfa was very impressive because Lando was in full-on race management mode um, from pretty much the moment he he, he switched to the mediums. Um, when Daniel Ricciardo had made a couple of... Uh, when when Ricciardo had pit and, again and put hards on, obviously he was running a very different race to Norris at the back of the grid, Norris got multiple radio messages urging him to, you know, basically remember that it was all about race, race and time management um, for him. When he 
briefly past Leclerc because of Leclerc's late pit stop for softs. I think Lando also got another radio message then to say, don't fight Leclerc, basically, even though at that point he would have been clinging on to a podium. It was unlikely he was ever going to hold him off, of course. But the point is that I don't think at the end of that race, you have no idea how much longer Lando could have kept that pace going for on those tyres. Maybe he judged it absolutely perfectly. That was the total limit of what the McLaren had and therefore it was genuinely a bit slower than the Alfa and the the Mercedes. Or maybe Lando actually had another 15, 20 laps in those tyres and if he'd pushed it an extra three, four tenths of a second a lap earlier in the Grand Prix, he he would have made it to the finish anyway. That's the bit that's a bit too difficult to to really quantify. I think all we can say is that Australia wasn't a one-off. That car is, I think, legitimately a Q3 car I think it's a point scoring car at the majority of races and I think what has essentially happened is uh, along with some small updates just to bring a little bit more out of the the package I think McLaren has just caught up with what it was missing in Bahrain and maybe in Saudi Arabia still as as well because it we keep we've talked about that terrible second test in Bahrain so much now but it is worth people bearing in mind. They they went into that opening weekend with hardly any setup optimization work. They didn't really understand the car. And they spent basically the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend and Saudi data collecting, which they then poured over before Australia. And I don't think it's a coincidence that every Grand Prix, that car seems to have been better and better out the blocks. Yeah, certainly playing catch up McLaren and they've they've done that initial catch up to get to where actually they look like they were in the Barcelona test. Uh, in terms of, of, of their place in the pecking order. So they've steadied the ship. Now they just need to make it a, a little bit quicker, add a little bit of downforce as, as the season progresses. Mark, let's talk about Mercedes. They had a terrible weekend, but George Russell did manage to finish fourth, holding off Valtteri Bottas. He jumped from 11th on the grid to sixth on the first lap, partly helped by what went on at, at San Burello. Lewis Hamilton was mired down in 13th at the end of the race. So why were things so difficult? for Mercedes this weekend on top of the difficulties we've already discussed endlessly in the in the past month or two? Yeah, there's two things. There's one which was actually performance, pure performance, um, and the other which was circumstantial. Um, on the performance side, they had to raise the car up even more than at the previous uh, events. For some reason, it, the, the uh, porpoising was being triggered at um, lower speeds even than they'd encountered so far. They still don't understand why. They don't know why why it's happening in the first place, and they don't know why it was worse at Imola than at the other tracks. But it was, and so they had to lose more downforce than usual. Now, that said, it was still, in theory, comfortably a quick enough car to get both through the Q3 um, but the reason they didn't get through to Q3, as you probably saw, was in it needed two uh, two flying laps. It, it had it, one one flying lap to get the tyres up to temperature and one to do the proper time. Um, and it was the other cars were all able to do to, to get the tyres switched on, but the Mercedes for some reason couldn't. And so they were caught out by the science red flag at the end of Q2. They'd just done their first flying lap, either the warm-up lap, and then there were red flags. And so they never got to do the second warm-up lap because it then rained and that t- session just timed out. So that that was their times. What was supposed to be uh, tyre warm-up laps ended up being their qualifying laps in Q2. So, um, you, you know, George happened to push three-tenths <laughs> faster on that lap than Lewis, but it, it weren't series laps anyway. And then that, actually, that three-tenths difference totally defined a completely different weekend for George and, and Lewis because um, coming back to the odd-numbered and the even-numbered side of the grid again, it meant George vaulted up from 11th to 6th and uh, Lewis was just mired back in the midfield. And George was, in, in fairness, uh, George then did put a very, very ballsy pass on uh, Magnussen's Haas into Rivazza uh, to make up another place. Um Lewis was uh, even worse after the the pit stop because he was delayed as Ocon was um, uh, released in front of him and that put him even further back and it was in a DRS train. So the car ahead of him always had DRS on the from the car ahead of it, which in turn had the DRS the car. And yet you're just trapped then, that's it. And in whatever position that is, and it happened to be 14th or something, whatever, whatever it was at the time, 
that's just where you're going to be, especially as you couldn't come offline to try and outbreak because it was just, you know, the, it was still damp offline. Um, so that was it. And uh, you, it really just complete contrast and fortunes, but very much a circumstantial one. There's nothing too much to be read into the difference in performance here between Russell and Hamilton. It could just have easily swung the other way around, um, just according to what happened on, that Q, on those Q2 warm-up laps. I'll just bump up a race members club question, which I was going to put to you in a few minutes, but it is about the Mercedes drivers from Michael Griggs. It says, regarding the difference between the Mercedes drivers' positions, when will it be time to say that it's more than luck for George versus Lewis? Is there a difference in driving style which is suiting George more with the hobbled silver bullet? I know you've already talked about how the, the luck swung their weekends here, but it is fair to say Russell's had a a pretty decent season. His his lows have been less low than, than Hamilton's. That's perhaps the way to put it. Yes, I think so. I think on Lewis's side of the garage, they're, um, they're being a bit more gung-ho and adventurous in what to try because they're just so uninterested in, in lowly positions and they're trying to make a breakthrough. So you've, you saw that happen in Jeddah. Um, I don't think that was a factor here. That was just, as I, as I said, just the circumstances of Q2 and the red flag. Um, but there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Lewis is struggling to get the best from this car or that there's any significant difference in the performance of the two drivers. We've just seen a uh, a weekend where um, it went right for one and wrong for the other one. Yeah, and we've seen that through the year. Obviously, Australia, Russell finished ahead, but that was the safety car timing. Saudi Arabia, Hamilton had his qualifying struggles, Russell less so, so. Good job from Russell, 100%. But yeah, I don't, I don't think people need to rush to pension off Lewis Hamilton and suggest he's uh, he, he suddenly uh, lost it. I don't think that's the, the case. Scott, coming to your question, which I was going to ask first. This is from Oscar Robledo. Says, any insight on what is coming from Mercedes to address their performance issues? No, not really. Um, they still don't understand. You know, Mark was just explaining. They don't understand the cause of it in the first place. They can't, and they can't just make a decision on how is best to proceed until they understand that. This weekend was the first time I think they'd sort of publicly admitted or anyone in the team had really publicly admitted that this might not be solved in a a time frame that lets it salvage its 2022 season, at least in terms of a title challenge. Ultimately, because the technical regulations stay stable after this year, if, if the Mercedes concept does work and it can finally be understood and then the relevant improvements brought to the car to to deal with that initial porpoising problem then that will work in theory as well for next season and beyond as it will for the end of this year so even if it takes another 10-15 races Mercedes could theoretically end the season fighting for poles and wins and then know that this concept works but it's the 2023 season in which it can fight for a title so that is part of the motivation for wanting to persevere and keep trying to understand and keep trying to improve this concept. The other part of that is that because Mercedes doesn't know um, doesn't know exactly what's causing this limitation, it can't make a judgment call on whether or not there's a greater you know, ceiling in terms of potential if they just started completely from scratch and went down a different concept. Because ultimately months and months of development have informed them that this is the direction to take. They can't just throw all of that away on the assumption that there's greater potential just by going in a completely different um, direction from scratch. So it's a really complicated position for the team to be in and it all comes down to not really knowing what that problem is. Until they until they fully understand it, they understand the cause, they are basically stuck and it's got to the point where Hamilton said at the weekend that obviously he hopes that he, this isn't his preference, but he basically in, he implied that actually you know, it's not the end of the world if, if Mercedes finds out that the car concept is inherently flawed, because then at least they have, they have an answer. It's definitive. And then they can go about trying to design the car a different way. But at the moment, they're just sort of stuck in a horrible limbo. It's all about understanding. Isn't it? That's going to be the key thing. And we should say... They still have what's usually the third strongest car, so they're on course to be third in the Constructors' Championship. I know that's pretty bad by their standards, but for most teams, that's still a solid season, so it's not like they're they're off the back. So they've got a car they can at least do something 
with. But yeah, it's going to be a long, hard season. The the mood has gradually got more and more pessimistic as the races have ticked by. Mark, Valtteri Bottas is is well out of the, the Mercedes uh, struggles this year. He's having a lovely time at Alfa Romeo still. He finished fifth. But should he have got past Russell late on? And could he even have actually been on the podium, given he lost nine seconds to a cross-threaded front right, front right wheel nut at the pit stop? And actually, his pace was quicker than, than Norris's during the second half of the race. Yeah, his, his pace was tremendous. And, and considering he, he missed that whole session, um, because the, they were basically rebuilding the car, and um, he, he really... He really pulled it out of the bag. Um, the Alpha was working really well this weekend. Um, he said he did the sprint race, you know, absolutely flat out, start to finish, and the tyres were still in really good shape. So it was really had a really nice balance, and they do seem to be making genuine progress there. Um, yeah, a shame he lost those, the the nine seconds in the in the pits. So it's also a shame that um, the Ricciardo um, science accident happened right in front of him and delayed him, lost him a position there as well um i think had that not happened yes he would have um he would have been running ahead of russell and had he not had the pit stop delay as well but even with that pit stop delay he was coming you know hard at, at russell that said russell was compromised in that second stint because the equipment that's supposed to uh make the f- front flap adjust as you go from inters to uh, dry didn't work and it didn't put in the adjustment so he, but um, Russell had a quite a bad understeer balance in that second stint. But even so, um, Valtteri was coming at him. And that was, um, yeah, it's quite impressive. As Scott mentioned before, we don't know if he was really quicker than Lando because Lando had no need to be pushing anything like as hard as um, Valtteri did. But I, it wouldn't surprise me if, if those three cars weren't on the same sort of pace if uh, this weekend, if, if it had been a straightforward weekend and we just seen them all um, get their ultimate potential. I'd say the McLaren and Mercedes and the Alpha are all at a very similar level of performance this weekend. Yeah, that's probably fair. And Bottas, he raced well both in the sprint and the the main race. He didn't have great starts in either, but he was able to recover quite neatly, which was uh, very, very encouraging. Well, more on the Imola race in a moment, but first let's turn our attention to progress in our Grid Rival League. Grid Rival is an excellent fancy motorsport game and the only one where you get the chance to prove you are much better at it than me, Scott Mitchell, and many of our other colleagues from the race. Grid Rival still open for sign-up, so you can join in. You just need to select a team of five drivers and a constructor within budget, of course, and your double points talent driver from those eligible, and you can rack up the points and climb the league. I've done okay this week, actually. My controversial Yuki Tsunoda pick paid off with his seventh place, so I even had him as my double points talent driver. 942 points in total. Scott, that's got to have beaten you. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you have. Uh, Well done. Um, It's... um... That how the how the tables have turned because while um while we continue to lavish praise on Valtteri Bottas, there is no need for Valtteri Bottas sympathy corner. It seems on the Race F1 podcast this year, but fortunately these grid rival discussions have introduced Scott Mitchell sympathy corner because I'm I'm just in an absolute uh run a uh, rut of misery at the moment, and it was um it it went extremely bad for me uh, today. I had uh, Fernando Alonso. Um, as my uh, star driver, I also had a lineup that included um, Leclerc, Ferrari, uh, Pierre Gasly, and Joe Guanyu. In fact, the only driver I think that did even remotely well for my team was Kevin Magnussen. Um, uh, across the board, I think it's fair to say that this was a um, this was a character-building weekend. Um, we're going to dust ourselves off. We're going to go over the data, and we'll try and come back stronger in Miami. All you can do. If you struggled, we go again. That's the right approach. I should say that despite my good score, I did make a slight misstep because George Russell left my team and was replaced by Carlos Sainz because I thought his price would have dropped a little bit after Australia. He could be on for a decent result. How wrong I was there. There has been a change as well at the top of the league, an astonishing 4,207 points for Shaggy Five, whose current lineup is Pierre Gasly, Valtteri Bottas, Lando Norris, Charles Leclerc, Kevin Magnussen and Red Bull, who all did pretty well at Imola, although I noticed that team doesn't have Nicholas Latifi in it on a short-term deal, as mine currently does for financial reasons. So, yeah, that probably says something about my team selection. So, so even reason- in even in the fantasy world, Nicholas Latifi's main role is as a, a, a as a financial asset within a team, basically. 
In this case, yes. But he was also backed as being a safe pair of hands, despite a number of mishaps so far this year. And he did get the car to the finish nicely, so he got me a few points. But, yeah, I think the, the league leader, Shaggy5, is about 500 points ahead of me. So, yeah, I've got some work to do. So to join the fun, do download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can sign up. You'll find the link in the episode description for this podcast. Well, Sympathy Corner, Scott, you tried to lay claim to, but I am going to send you over to Sympathy Corner, which I'm naming today Carlos Sainz Sympathy Corner. He ended up in the gravel early on for the second rate in succession, and he had the shunt in Q2. So the season's gone from bad to worse for him, hasn't it? Yeah, but at least this time he wasn't um, he wasn't 100% to blame, blame for it. Obviously, he caused his own problems earlier in the weekend. Um, and uh, that was... That was very disappointing with his crash and qualifying. I know he said that he didn't really feel like he was even close to the limit. And he said he didn't feel like he was exposing himself to a mistake. And yet there there he was, backwards, having broken the car up against the barrier. Did a great job in the sprint race, basically undone the damage. So start of the Grand Prix was, okay, not quite where he was hoping to be, but he was certainly not out of position really, for the start of the Grand Prix itself. And you sort of think, okay, here we go. This is your chance. You're, you've, uh, you've you've done the hard work in the sprint. You're back. You've, you've reset your opportunity. And then the Grand Prix lasts all of about, what, 15 seconds? Um, I, 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 I sort of think I know what exactly what you're going to say, Ed, which is that ultimately if you go around the outside, you are leaving yourself open to, um, to some risk, which I do agree with. But I think in that situation... Carlos sort of made that risk as low a percentage as possible. He was really sensible on the outside. He left a load of space and he just got understeered into by Daniel Ricciardo. Contact, spun round and yet again beached in the gravel, nowhere to go. And a race, that uh, a week that started um, all about, you know, playing up to the Tifosi, new contract, timing it for Ferrari's home, one of Ferrari's home Grand Prix anyway. And he doesn't actually get to even complete a single lap of that Grand Prix. So, yeah, really um, not what the uh, Tifosi that was sand. I saw that some, there were some fans behind the fence on the, um, the sort of, I guess, the in, well, what is the inside of the of the chicane. That's um, that's not exactly what they were there to see, was it? Yeah, unfo- it was unfortunate for Carlos Sainz. Yeah, there's always an element of risk when you're racing, but Ricardo understeered, slid off the curb tried to take a little bit of it to to make sure there was enough space and it, it didn't work. And he was uh, apologetic. I think it was right that there wasn't any kind of penalty or anything for it, racing incident. But yeah, Carlos Sainz can feel a little bit hard done by uh, on that one. So he, he merits sympathy corner. But it's just an example of sometimes when things start running against you, they have a habit of keep running against you no matter what you do. So yeah, he'll be on to Miami hoping he can get onto an even keel there because again... His pace was was decent at Imola, so let's hope he can uh, he can get the result he deserves next time out. Mark, we talked about Daniel Ricciardo there. We've got a question from Niall Boyle. He says, at what stage does his worrying trend of poor performances become terminal at McLaren? Now, it is fair to say he has been at sub-Norris levels for the four races so far this year, isn't it? Although he hasn't been poor, but he's just not been at Norris's level, has he? Yeah, that's true, and um, it won't be a role that uh, Daniel will be um, prepared to accept um, from himself. And I think um, the uh, the crux point won't be um, McLaren giving up on him. It will be Daniel himself if he cannot reach the 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 level that he's used to operating at. I I don't think he will. Um, you know, I think it'll, there will come a point where it will be him that, that calls it a day um, if he cannot come back from it. I still think he can come back from it. I'm still hopeful that he can. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, 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 the difference is small now. It's a lot smaller than it was for most of last year. Um, so the, it, the, the reset of the new car, I think, has helped. But, yeah, there's still, we're still not at full Daniel yet. Yeah, ultimately, I don't think he's doing a bad job for McLaren, but he's not doing a Daniel Ricciardo-level job, as we've come to expect it in the past, and that's what he's he's searching for. Yeah, I mean, you could compare... If if you if we say that Lando is operating at the very top level, and he, and he may well be, he may well be operating at Verstappen, Leclerc sort of level, I'd say Daniel's operating at something like Sergio Perez level, 
but is in a much less competitive car. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable way to to look at it, and certainly that's not not a bad level at all. But yeah, he's he's going to have to find a way to to unlock some performance, and the longer it goes on, the harder it is to see that happening. But yeah, like you, I've seen Daniel Ricciardo do quite a lot of really impressive things in F1, so he's still got credit in the bank as far as I'm concerned. But it will run out at some point. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Let's talk about Yuki Tsunoda, Mark. He got his first points of the season in seventh, and as I mentioned, he was a star for my grid rival team, so that was good news. He had qualified Gasly, having been on that same rather suboptimal run planning queue one. They both crossed the line with something like just over 50 seconds to, to go to finish their last push laps, which is not ideal. But he, he finished seventh in the race. He lost that sixth place late on to Leclerc's recovery. How important do you think that result was for Yuki Tsunoda on what is very much the local circuit for uh, Alpha Tauri? Yeah, I think um, it's just part of the the rebuilding of um, Yuki from his um, confidence crisis of last year, um, which he was he was starting to recover from by the end of last year. But it's continued. There's still little blips, but this was a very positive weekend in general. As you say, the um, the the team wasn't at its best in terms of operations this weekend, and that did compromise its whole weekend. But he really did a good job, and. Um, in very tricky conditions when it would have been very, very easy to um, put it in the gravel. Uh, he, he put in a really impressive race. Um, he ran ahead of Gasly throughout and he, he put moves on people. Yeah, really well deserved those seventh, the seventh place points. Yeah, and of course, this was the site of where things started to go a little bit wrong for him last year when he had that uh, that Q1 crash. Scott, let's talk about Aston Martin. They had not one but two cars in the points, Sebastian Vettel and Lance Stroll 8th and 10th. How much does that represent the team making good progress and how much was circumstances and good execution? Well, I'll um, I'll answer with a question of my own. What percentage do you think is the team making improvements and what te- what percentage is it making uh, taking advantage of circumstances? I'd say it was largely good execution and circumstances that allowed that to happen combined with a, a little bit of improvement they're not going backwards but I don't think they've gone forwards with that car no I would uh, I would put the percentage of them making an actual improvement with the car at five percent maybe like 10 if you're generous but um, I really don't think it's even that high I think they just did a really really fantastic job of maximizing an opportunity within a pretty chaotic weekend you saw the job that they did on Friday I think they outperformed them and Vettel even managed to get into to Q3 but the pace of the car we saw in the sprint race that that's the pace of uh, of the Aston Martin which is that when it's out of position it then both the cars drop back and uh the the feeling inside the team was that the sprint race showed that that car is absolutely not capable of finishing in the top 10 but then on the Sunday with the rain and the opportunity to have a perhaps mixed up Grand Prix, the team in their briefing 
for the Grand Prix, they said, look, we did a great job on Friday. We ma- we maximised it on Friday. We know that we got the car into a good place. The drivers did a great job. Let's just do that again. Let's have the cleanest race we can have. Others may, may make mistakes, but let's be the ones that don't. And if we And if we can have a clean Grand Prix and do everything like we did on in qualifying, basically, we might have a chance of scoring points here. And that is exactly what they did. They, um, you know, that car didn't look bad at all in the opening, um, in the opening stint, certainly as the track track dried, unsurprisingly sort of struggled more and more. Um, but it was, it was just really, really well executed. They, they, they managed the switch over to slick tires, right? Sebastian Vettel actually wanted to go, I think a lap or two even earlier than he did, but, um, he still felt that that was um, that was on on the limit, so he was happy that that they did that. He also felt, I think, that that was one of his best drives that he's done in a very long time. He said he's driven uh, he's won races in which he's uh, driven worse than than this weekend. Um, so I think it was just an all round very very good job. Um, it ends uh, it ends their barren run. They are no longer the only team that has not scored a point this season. I think they. When they on like a six or seven race pointless streak stretching back to last season as well, so it was really, it was a, it was a real drought that they was they were suffering from. Um, but this will be a huge huge boost because Vettel came into the weekend with questions about his future and his motivation, and so did and the team got those questions as well. So I think this was a this was a, a nice boost with with a car that is not going to get better for at least a couple more races. They do have parts coming that they are hoping will allow them to run the car lower. They've got basically a, a, a slightly different version of the same problem that Mercedes has in terms of terrible porpoising and not being able to run the car the way they're meant to. But it sounds like they do have stuff in the pipeline. Maybe they're a bit further along than Mercedes is in understanding their specific problem. So I think in a couple of races, we might actually see Aston Martin sort of nudging its way towards this kind of result on merit rather than just by opportunity. Yeah, and as you say, it was great to see Sebastian Vettel having a good weekend. It was funny on Friday when he was talking about his future. It's difficult to put your finger on any particular words he specifically said, but he just had the air of someone who was sort of shuffling towards thinking about it might be getting towards the end of his career. But then after the race today, he was asked if he enjoyed it. And he said, yeah, I, I, I really like that. So it's it's good to see Vettel at his best. And I hope he can sustain it within the limitations of a car that's not going to be finishing 8th and 10th that often on, on current form. Mark, Haas was back in the points. Kevin Magnussen's at ninth place. He had that Haas best ever fourth in Friday's qualifying sessions. But he did slip back both in the sprint and the race itself from top five positions, I think he briefly held. So what does that tell us about Hass's real performance level. Ah, uh, yeah, Kevin over delivered in qualifying. He was um, the, the car was nicely balanced in the wet, and just it, Kevin went with it, and he did a terrific performance in in the in the qualifying. Um, gradually, sort of found its natural level, slid slid back um, in in the sprint, and then a little bit more in the in the Grand Prix. Um, but yeah, I think that's about where it was. It's um, Although it qualified at the front of the the mid midfield pack, it it's not in it wasn't in reality um, probably as quick a race car as the McLaren, the um, Alpha, and uh, the Mercedes, and um, that's that's just what we saw play out. But uh, yeah, it, it's not um, it's a recovery of sorts after a very difficult uh, Australia where it, it, things just didn't go right at all so it's uh it's sort of it's back in the game three points finishes in four races for Magnussen which is a a a decent return but Scott Mick Schumacher hasn't got any points he had a spin coming off Tamburello on the first lap and clipped Alonso's side pod in doing so that ultimately put the Alpine out so how concerning is it that he's struggling so much up against Magnussen hasn't managed to get that point on the board yet yeah it's um it's not it's not good for, for for Mick this is a this was a big test for him this season. There was a when Kmag uh, did his deal at the last minute to to come in um, halfway through pre-season, te- pre-season testing. And we talked about how it was a great opportunity for Mick to to learn from a more experienced driver who knows the team very well, who is a known good level of Grand Prix driver, not a lost world champion Kmag, but a, a, a very very decent operator. Um, and also someone that gave Mick a benchmark, having spent last season alongside a you know a 
in blunt terms, a pretty hapless fellow rookie. Um, Nikita Mazepin was no benchmark for, for, for Mick last year. But within that was also a big challenge because ultimately this was when we were going to find out how good Mick is. And it was going to be a very public benchmark to measure him against, not just an internal one for, for him to try to improve. And so far he's fallen short. He's he's not on Magnussen's pace over one lap. He's not threading together clean races. Um, I think I think there are glimpses of sort of the promise that we did see in a decent rookie season from Schumacher last year. But it's just not. He just needs a. He needs to thread together a full weekend. And even if he ends up grinding out a really a really gritty like one point for 10th or something like that. I think he needs to get that monkey off his back. I think he needs to break his points duck and just just not have to worry about that that pressure. K-Mag is going to deliver the big results for Haas this year, no matter how good a job Mick does. I just don't think Mick is at that level of driver yet. He may well become it. He may, may well get there, but he is not He is not that level of, uh, of driver at, at the moment. And do you know what's a bit concerning is haven't really seen in the first four Grand Prix anything quite like what Joe Guan Yu's done at Alfa Romeo. And Joe's a rookie. Okay, that Alfa Romeo is probably a better package than the Haas overall. But, you know, there have just been a couple of moments with Joe where you've just sort of gone, actually, he did a really decent job there. And I just don't feel like we've had that from Mick. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but it just... It, it just hasn't been a, a particularly impressive start to the season. Yeah, he's going to be desperate to to get that point on the board as soon as he possibly can, and, and the car's capable of doing it. Mark Esteban Ocon, he was 11th on the road, but dropped to 15th thanks to a penalty for an unsafe release. He suggested having to kind of square his exit from the pit box to go around a hose that Alpha Tauri had left sticking out from Sonoda's stop at the same time played a part in exaggerating the extent to which he squeezed Hamilton. He didn't complain about the penalty, but any sympathy for him with that? Yeah, a little bit. You can't really um, see very much. And he, he, I think he was only aware that Hamilton was there when um, he was almost you know alongside him. Um, but yeah, um, Fairly nondescript weekend for him, not through any fault of his own. He broke a gearbox in qualifying and put him out in Q1. Um, yeah, and so didn't really make much progress from there. Um, Alonso had the upgrade on the car, uh, so they feel that that was a positive um, development. And Ocon will have that also at the next race. Yeah, he was quite optimistic about the performance of that upgrade. We didn't really see it from Alonso properly in the race because he had that side pod damage. Although we did see in the sprint Alonso going backwards a bit, struggling a bit with tyre deg. So yeah, I'm not sure exactly where Alpine would have shaken out with a normal clean weekend at, uh, at Imola. But uh, yeah, Ocon did a decent job to get back to 11th on the road and ultimately the unsafe releases is not his fault. Scott, Alex Alban, he was 11th. That's another good drive for him in the Williams that seems to have less paint on it as well every uh, race weekend thanks to weight saving but no point this time but he can be quite satisfied with that performance I think especially with how long he kept quicker cars behind him. Yep he pulled off a nice little move on uh, Lewis Hamilton as well obviously benefited from the fact that he'd uh, I think stopped was it one lap earlier so he had the tyres nicely up to to temperature and while Lewis was um, uh, scrambling for grip um, on his outlap, uh, Alex managed to get the get get the job done down into the the Villeneuve chicane. Um, yeah, just a, just a really clean drive. You could tell that that car didn't quite have the pace of the cars it was running ahead of, but Albon didn't put a foot wrong. And when when you drive that cleanly um, on a track like Imola, especially when it becomes one line the whole lap because it's wet offline, you have a really good chance of staying there. All he needed was a little bit more luck. He would have been back in the points again. And um, I, you know. I have I have to say Alex is Alex is probably doing a slightly more effective job than I thought he he'd do there and not not because I thought he'd be, go there and be hopeless or anything like that I mean Alex is a is is a good driver and a better one that he he looked at uh, at times at Red Bull and I always thought that Williams would get the best out of him but I honestly didn't expect him to start this strongly and it's obviously very very difficult to 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 judge impossible to actually make a like for like comparison but in terms of um, if you just look at the job he's doing relative to Nicholas Latifi, 
Um, you look at the job he's doing in terms of galvanizing the team. He's giving them something to smile about on track. He seems to be incredibly popular within the team as well. He is he's doing a pretty good job of replacing George Russell. Uh, I did not envy him in that position. That they were big shoes to fill. But you know, maybe um, maybe keep this between the three of us and the people listening to this podcast. But Alex might be making Williams not really miss Russell, maybe as much as they thought they would. Yeah, I think he's made a very good start. In fact, I sat down with him during the weekend to, to have a chat to him about life at Williams and how he's rebuilt his F1 career for a piece on the race website that will appear before Miami. So we'll be getting into that topic and it's good to see him keep up the the storyline, shall we say, with another good performance uh, at Miller. We should briefly, Mark, mention the one incident we haven't really talked about, which was the Gasly-Joe collision in the sprint race at Piratella. Both drivers were irritated with each other. Joe was on the outside, Gasly on the inside. You happy with that as a racing incident? Do you think either driver was legitimately annoyed with the other, or was it just one of those things? I think it could have been avoided, but it was a racing incident. I don't see it one more than the other. Um, yeah, it, 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 so turned in not from the as wide as he could have done, given that there was another car there, but um, he didn't do anything outrageous. And uh, yeah. Gasly might have expected a bit more room. Um, yeah, but yes, racing incident. Yeah, exactly. They both had an element of risk in that and those risks intersected and resulted in uh, them both uh, hitting trouble or each other, I should really say. We have got a few questions about the more general aspects uh, of the weekend, which I wanted to get into just to, to finish off. Mark, DRS is one of those. First up, Niall Boyle says DRS hesitancy had a huge impact on this race. If it had been switched on early, what do you think might have transpired? Of course, the DRS isn't used in the wet, is it? And then it's the race director's discretion when it gets activated again. Yeah, I think um, when we were watching it at the time, there was a, a bit of sense of frustration that it wasn't being um, being enabled and the the track was you know seemingly dry enough to do it um but there's a couple of drivers said actually it it was a lot trickier than it probably looked on screen where where the overhanging trees are it was extremely um it's tricky still it was very very marginal and down to tamburello it was it was tricky and I, you know they 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 probably had in mind that the very big accident there last year between Russell and Bottas and I think they were just they were playing it cautiously and okay you, you can say well let's you know there is there is risk in racing so let's just um, accept it and, and do it but I I don't know I think I think they called it about right I think um, it, it seemed easy at the time to be critical but I, I think on balance it was it was okay I think it was lap 35 that was the first lap they could use the DRS on. I think they said it was going to be reactivated during lap 30. For Scott, some more DRS questions here. Two in one for you. Rupert Stevens asks, was today's non-DRS action a strong enough case for DRS at least being tempered, even if it's too early to eliminate it? And Henri Haler says, we just had a great example of DRS versus no DRS, as half the race didn't have it. Do you feel that DRS remains important to the new generation of cars? It, it's definitely important. Um, if you look back at, uh, let's say, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, where we had those wheel-to-wheel fights between Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc, both drivers felt that those fights wouldn't have happened without DRS. So while the cars, while this generation of car can follow more closely, um, there are still limitations, obviously. Um, the hope was always that it would be an improvement, but there would this would be sort of like the start of the process, basically, not rather than an end point. So I think that for now, unfortunately, we do still need the DRS. And I say unfortunately purely because it's so random in terms of its um, effectiveness. You get you go to some tracks with some DRS zones and it's an absolute easy drive bypass, and then other other tracks and circumstances and it's actually a bit more what DRS is supposed to do so it is um it is a bit tricky to to judge i thought one thing that was a bit interesting is that ultimately it ultimately the 
the efficiency of each of the cars and their their characteristics absolutely plays a part. We I do think across the sprint race and the Grand Prix we saw all sorts of different things in terms of the effectiveness of the DRS. We saw super easy breeze bypasses, but you know Verstappen's move on Leclerc to win the sprint race, for example, that to me felt like a textbook pass in terms of what the DRS is meant to do, which is let someone challenge into a braking zone rather than breeze past. And then you had other cars that even with the DRS couldn't get past the car in front. So you had the full range, basically, which shows that it isn't just a, it's not like a one-size-fits-all thing, the the DRS. I think we have to be a bit, um, be a bit more nuanced about it rather than suggest that there's only sort of one thing that's, uh, one thing that's being shown. The, the only thing I would say about the impact the DRS had or didn't have on the Grand Prix is that um, I do think there would have been a couple more passes with the DRS had uh, the track been completely dry. Because ultimately going down into turn one, it wasn't it wasn't even a case of you could challenge into turn one. You, you had to use the DRS to blast pass in a straight line and then get back over on the dry bit. So you had it a couple of times where cars sort of went in and there was, you know, Lewis Hamilton looked that whole time he was chasing Pierre Gasly. There were a few times where he got, you know, front front axle level with rear axle and that kind of thing. And Gasly was just able to, like, hold him off because ultimately Hamilton had to back out of it to avoid being on the damp stuff. So the conditions absolutely played a part in it. It was just, it's just, I think this weekend was an imperfect reference for what role the DRS has beyond proving that we do still need it. One more DRS question, Mark. Chris Parrott says, surely it's time to trial a race without DRS with the new cars. We had some fantastic battling between cars today in some unusual areas of the track that we wouldn't have seen in previous seasons, rain notwithstanding. Why not run the next sprint race without DRS to make a direct comparison with the full race? You could. Um, it it's, would be valid, I think. Um, but I don't think you get an answers like that um, because it's it, a race... It, it, it's, it's always circumstantial, and a race can be made by how difficult an overtake is, if you've, especially if you've got the slower car leading the faster car. And we've seen fantastic races like that at Imola in the past, um, notably with Alonso and Schumacher. Um, sometimes a race can be made by the fact that a car ca- cars can overtake, and it's just really completely circumstantial which of those set of circumstances you get, and therefore whether DRS is... Um, a positive or a negative force. So you could do the experiment, but it wouldn't necessarily mean anything, I think. Next question for you, Scott, from Oscar Robledo. He asks, has the current breed of F1 cars completely outgrown the classic tracks? And in a similar vein, has this race highlighted that the overtaking problem that has plagued F1 for years has not been resolved even with DRS? Um, I, uh, I don't know. I think that's a bit... I think it's a bit difficult. I think... Um, I don't think there should be a... Um, one one type of track if you you see what i mean i I don't think it's a problem for f1 to have a mix of tracks that are you know super wide and easy to go four wide through a corner through or a track like this where sometimes it does seem like there's only one line and barely room for two cars to even go wheel to wheel i think i think if i think if this race was a total procession i'd be a bit more worried by it i think the cars are a bit too big for the circuit not in the same way that these cars are too big for Monaco or somewhere like that. But I think that adds, because there is the possibility of racing here, I think it adds something to it because it's just a little bit different. And like I said right at the beginning of this podcast, for me, watching it from afar, I still get a sense of wonder watching the cars on a track like this that I don't get when I'm watching like 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 Qatar for like for example last year which in was actually quite a cool track for these cars but it was pretty boring to watch them through um a, a lot of the time so so I'm actually I'm actually pretty happy with it in in that regard I do understand um his point and I do think it's a valid concern when these cars are getting so big and and so heavy but I think we should just be happy that a track like Imola is 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 on the calendar and as for the overtaking problem um yeah i think uh, i think it's clear that uh f1 just has a uh, an inherent issue there and i i don't see that ever being resolved unless the car suddenly get about 150 kilos lighter and the final question is for you mark from Sean Rooney who asks what's the future of the sprint race experiments is it here to stay or will there be further tinkering with the format 
I think it's here to stay for the foreseeable. I think we'll see it expanded probably into six races next year um, because they'll, they'll do the, the whatever financial bargaining they need to do, which they, they were trying to do this year, but they just failed to do it in time. Um, I don't think it'll be ever universal. I think it'll it'll always be on some tracks and, and not others. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's 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 just going to be part of the um, part of the mix for the foreseeable future. I think. Yeah, and I think it worked reasonably well this weekend. Wouldn't necessarily want the sprint format every weekend, but working pretty decently and pretty much as expected. Thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes for your insight. There's lots more of that coming on therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen, including Mark's race analysis, my ever-controversial driver ratings, and Scott's taking a look at Lewis Hamilton's misery after a difficult start to the season. Check out our YouTube channel. It says loads to watch there. We've also got many other podcasts from the race for you to listen to, including our IndyCar, MotoGP, and Formula E podcasts. Next up, it's F1's visit to Miami for one of the most eagerly anticipated races of the year. That's in two weeks, but in the meantime, stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.